The R&B Solutionist Thinking Podcast Series for the creative minds with a passion for possibility. Hosted by Bruce Whitfield. Not one, but three solutionist thinkers on this week's podcast. Their startup is the stuff of legend. Many partnerships, most in fact, probably end in tears. Few certainly last 40 years and very few, if any, results in the creation of hundreds of billions of rands worth of value in the space of half a lifetime. They're called variously the three musketeers, the three wise men, and possibly other things from people who don't like them very much. Their names are G.T. Ferreira, Laurie Dippenard, and Paul Harris, the founders of First Rand. This is, as far as I can tell, the first time all three have been around the same microphones for public dissemination. They've done conferences together, a couple of comedy gigs at the comedy clubs, but this is the first time three suspects are lined up for the interrogation on solutionist thinking. Remember, this is a little goldfish swallowing a whale. At the time, it was one of the biggest takeovers in the world, 1998. But you had no money. We used the shares of our existing operation as a currency. You reverse yourself into the the big whale and you pay for it with shares. We did that three times. That's how we bought RMB, how we bought Momentum and how we bought FNB Southern Life. I think a reverse takeover is probably the most underestimated or underrated strategy where you let somebody take you over but in exchange of shares you actually become the majority shareholder. I'm Bruce Whitfield and you are listening to Solutionist Thinking, brought to you by RMB. GT Ferreira, take me back to 1977. Paul Harris wasn't at the table in those days. It was you. It was Laurie Dippenard. It was a guy called Pat Goss. It was a tiny little business called RCI, Rand Consolidated Investments, downtown Johannesburg, Bramfontein or thereabouts. What was the plan? Correct. It was actually 20 Anderson Street. Um, Pat Goss that you referred to was probably, not probably, he was the catalyst in bringing us together. Um, I uh, had some ideas. We started a company, ran it for two years. It was quite successful, but had a bit of a fallout with my partners. And then I went to Pat to uh, suggest to him that we start another company, a similar company. And Pat then uh, agreed and said he'd like to join. Uh, but he said he had a friend, Laurie Dippenau, and we got introduced. And the three of us then started, I think it was 30 June um, 1977. So Pat, yes, was the actual catalyst. And he remained only for three months. His father passed away and he had to go and help his mother run uh, the family business. It's no ordinary family business, though. I mean, this family business today is jumbo cash and carry. It was a very substantial, in those days, Transkai trading company. Correct. In fact, we left him uh, with a small shareholding um, in the hope that he would be uh, generous enough to give us something in jumbo cash and carry. (laughs) However, that never happened. I think at the end, we got a, a share in a racehorse. But you got 40 years of service from Pat Goss, Laurie Dippenard. I mean, he served on boards. He was a, a wise counsel for many, many years on the boards of FNB and others. Um, he, unlike a guy called Ronald Wayne, Ronald Wayne was with Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, um, left Jobs and Wozniak and had 10% of startup Apple. 
Uh, and Ronald Wayne sold his 10% back to Wozniak and Jobs for $500. That 10% today would be worth $100 billion, considering Apple is a trillion-dollar company. Pat Goss didn't do that. He stayed invested. What made you decide to let him have a shareholding? Because when partnerships like that dissolve, even on good terms like yours did, you let him keep a stake. Well, it's exactly what GT said. We were hoping, if we left him with a shareholding, to be specific 500 rand. That was his investment. We were hoping we would be offered a uh, small share of the, their cash and carry business. So that was a real thing? You're not just Absolutely, joking. no, no, a real thing. So that never happened. And did Paul, you ask or did you just assume? Um, I think we just hoped. <laughs> <laughs> so Pat, then, but then Pat never sold. In fact, he just added. And obviously it's done extremely well for him. It's worth hundreds of millions uh, today. And uh, he actually added, instead of, not only did he not sell, he's added over the, the years. May I just say, he, he did dilute himself, uh, or we diluted himself from about 30% down to 5% and so on, so we let him have the 5 That 5 worth a lot more than the 30 however. The uh, <laughs> quite correct. Paul Harris, a bit like Ringo Starr, one of the original Beatles leaves the band, and you get the, the role of drummer. How did that happen? Well, I, I had been at school with Pat, and uh, I'd worked with the, he and Lowry at, uh, at the IDC. And uh, when he left, I sort of ended up uh, taking his place effectively. GT refers to a previous partnership going bad and then looking for new partners. What's made this partnership work. Laurie Dippenard. I think the most important thing is we have the same value system. So it's just like a marriage. If you have the different value systems, it's unlikely to work. I think we've got complementary talents. You know, we don't, there is overlap, but there's also some distinctive, unique uh, talents. And I think the other thing is we've always won arguments, not with shouting, but the strength of the debate that you put forward, facts and, and your reasoning process. So I'd, there were never really fiery arguments. You had to win the argument on a very rational basis. But you didn't know that. You didn't know that you had the same value systems. You didn't know at the time that you had complementary skills. You would have discovered that over time. The legend is that as you sat in that office in, in Anderson Street at RCI, there wasn't enough money to get your own photocopier. You had to go upstairs to make your photocopies. What is it that made the partnership successful over time? I mean, yes, you had the arguments. Yes, you would have had the disagreements. You would have had the debates. To your mind, what made it work? Look, in the choice of partners originally, I uh met Pat in the army. Um, I studied with him. I was in the same res, so I trusted Pat implicitly. And his word on Lowry was good enough for me. Um, and obviously, I also knew Paul from uh, university days. And uh, it's, I don't want to say it's the old school tie because people sort of frown when you say that. But there is something that bound us together even from those days. As far as lasting as long as it is, I, uh, or what he has, I agree with Lowry that uh, we've got different strengths and different weaknesses. And, uh, but we've always been able to uh, um, support each other in uh, any of the 
ideas, transactions, strategies, etc. Paul, have you ever gone off speaks with your partners? And Stephen Kosseff, your rival from next door, tells a story about how he and Bernard Cantor, his business partner of 40 years, once went for a week without talking. They just would not talk to you. It must have been very awkward. And it took a girlfriend at the time of Bernard's to make peace between them. Have you ever had a scenario like that? Look, I mean, obviously you have differences of opinion on various things. Um, but generally speaking, they were healthy uh, differences. And as Lowry said, it always got back to the business case. You know, and we, we have this saying that the business case prevails. And, you know, when people start getting a little bit emotional about things, and I think that's natural, uh, if you always come back to that, that, you know, chaps, let's not bring all those other issues into it. Let's only talk about the merits of this particular situation. And I think that we, we learned that. And, and, you know, if I could just add to why we probably, uh, you know, we've kept such a good relationship. I think it's quite early on we realized that this was very important. And we realized that the value system and the culture of the organization was probably its most important asset. And if you have an asset that's so important, then you must manage it. You must talk about it. You must inculcate that into the other people within the organization. Get them to buy and get them to own it. Get them to, to understand it in the same way. And so we, we spent countless hours. I mean, at one stage... Uh, and first round, we had once a month, we'd have what we call the first round philosophy session. And, uh, and that was talking about our culture and talking about our value system. And so I, I think what kept us together and made our, our bond sort of stronger and stronger is that we recognized that and we managed our culture very proactively. Then there's something that's in the category of good luck. We enjoy the same things in our leisure time, sport, the bush, etc. So we get along very well out of the office too, and then, very important, our wives adore each other. They get on so with each other, but not necessarily no, no, with wasn't. us. I mean, often a, if, you, if a wife doesn't fit in, you know, doesn't, it, it sort of drifts apart, but they, they're as good friends as we are. It's important. Yeah. It is yeah. important. Quick history lesson, RCI, 1977, 20 Anderson Street, to the acquisition just before the Rubicon speech of RMB in 1984. Um, the debt standstill, the chaos that must have erupted then. Many South Africans sit in recession South Africa as we speak. South Africa has just gone into recession and kind of feel that this is the worst moment ever in South African history. Okay, I, I've often said lately that when people argue about uh, downgrade, etc., that this is definitely not the worst times that South Africa has been economically. Economically, 1985 was the worst. Uh, it wasn't a question of downgrade. It was just we didn't have any grade. We were down and out. As you mentioned, the fin ran, the standstill debt traded at a discount, etc. But it just proves that um, South Africa came back. We actually did quite well during those times. Uh, and um, you address that adversity. We always um, concentrated, as Paul mentioned, on the business case. And very importantly, I think we realized that we couldn't do, we couldn't fight Goliath at that time being Standard Bank, uh, Barclays Bank at, at that stage still, and Folkscus. 
on their ground. So you had to do something different. You had to change the rules to a certain extent. You had to change the uh, area and you maybe change your weapons, etc., like David and Goliath. And I think that helped us uh, until 1985. And we realized that the transactions that we were doing were getting bigger and we needed a banking license. In fact, we applied three times and got kicked in the teeth every time. And we eventually were told that uh, there are too many banking licenses. And the last point on this that I can mention is that uh, I once spoke to a client of ours and said there are too many banking licenses. And he said there's too many steakhouses as well, but there's always place for a good new steakhouse. Then comes an opportunity, and in the chaos, Lloyd Debonard, in the chaos of the, the, the late 80s where P.W. Boerter's power is waning, he's running out of money, and South Africa is not even in junk, it's below junk. Um, Barclays disinvests from South Africa. Anglo-American then becomes the owner of an insurance company and a bank which has a license. That insurance company is Southern Life. That bank is today FNB. Um, and you go off to Anglo-American and say, we'd like to buy your insurance company, please. At the time, I think you had the Momentum license and you were busy developing that. And they came up with a different proposition that you'd kind of thought about but hadn't seriously considered. So I just want to take you back a bit. The reason we bought Momentum was to protect the sort of volatile income of RMB. In other words, buy an insurance company, it has a more predictable income stream. So that's what we did. Then, obviously, the Southern Life was ailing, and we wanted to buy that. But in the interim, we'd realized also to protect RMB from when our borders open up to foreign banks, we probably need a retail banking license. It was just a, a strategic intent. We need a retail banking license because it's very difficult to attack local uh, competitors in the retail space, much more difficult than in the sort of investment banking. Then we approached um, Anglo, as you said, to buy Southern Life simply because it was ailing and we could scale up at momentum. And they said, no, you've got to buy FNB. As well. As well. Now, this was an a, a, a enormous leap that we weren't necessarily geared to, but it was also once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Can I just add something else there? And that is, before that, we had a stake in what was in NBS. The Tower Building Society. The Tower Building Society, which effectively we thought would be our retail mm. play, but a whole lot of things happened and NBS ended up in another stable. It ended up at Boerland Bank and then it end, that ended up with BOE and then back into Nedbank. That's right. So, so it, there was a consistent theme, as Larry said, of, of wanting to get into retail. Right. So obviously then it fitted in with our strategic plan. The problem was the sheer size of it. But the thing that carried the day was it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. How long was that conversation when you went to, Southern, to, you went to Anglos to buy a Southern Life? Did you all three go together? I, uh, can't, I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> How long was the conversation? They want us to buy FNB as well. Okay, yes, let's do it. Or was it a bit more laboured than that? Who remembers? No, no, I mean, the, no, the, the, you know, at back home it would have been very laboured. It could have taken a day or two. Uh, who knows? I mean, it wouldn't have. It, it, all we knew is it wasn't outside our strategic framework. I mean, that's quite Im important. It, it wasn't like, a, are we doing something we never, ever contemplated? You weren't we contemplated buying, you weren't buying petrol stations. Right, exactly. But it's, the size of it 
remember, this is the uh, little goldfish swallowing a whale. It, it, that was the tricky. At the time, it was one of the biggest takeovers uh, in the world, 1998. But you had no money. 1998, you guys have no money to be No, the we had a different currency. We used the shares of our existing operations as a currency. So you, 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 you reverse yourself into the, the big whale and you pay, with, pay for it with shares. We did that three times. That's how we bought RMB, how we bought Momentum, and how we bought FNB Southern Life. I think a reverse takeover is probably the most underestimated or underrated strategy uh, where you let somebody take you over, but in exchange of shares, you actually become the majority shareholder. So the ego you take out of the uh, uh, equation, um, you take over me, but ultimately I get the majority of the shares in the company. And for many people, the risk, Paul Harris, is incredibly high because now you're betting everything on doing the next deal. Was there any doubt? 1998, uh, Nelson Mandela has been president for four years. Thabo Mbeki is just taking over as president of South Africa in 1999. Um, as it turns out, in retrospect, it was a really sweet time to have done a major takeover. You had a great runway. South Africa um, was saw its rating improve over a 15-year period. We went into a period of budget surpluses. It was a great time. But you didn't know it was going to be great when you did the deal. Yeah, I, I think the, at that stage, remember, Southern Life was the, the start of it. And Southern Life, between Southern Life and Momentum, they had a good balance sheet. So we didn't go in on debt or anything like that. We had, we had a strong balance sheet. Um, and the opportunity we saw is the changes that were taking place in, in the banking industry. And we backed ourselves that we could, we could make a contribution there. And, uh, you know, the companies were, were strong companies. So I think it was, we, we could have carried on and been the custodians of the inevitable. In other words, just things would have just carried on as they were. Uh, but uh, the real upside, the thing that excited us, the thing that I think we were able to inspire our, our staff uh, behind was the concept of, of, of changing things and making things more modern, modernizing it and so on. It wasn't that easy, I must say. It took a long time. It took 10 years to adapt the culture of FNB to more of a first-round culture. But we didn't take politics into consideration. That I can tell you. In other words, we didn't go and do a long exercise of the strength of the government, this or that. Yeah, it was an incredible deal. And the, the whole debate was, could we manage the deal? Could we improve the whole package? Not so much, you know, we weren't investing in another country. We would take political uh, and sovereign risk into account. We, yeah, anyway, we've got to live with that. So it was more about, all about the commercial side of it. So many people doing deals today anguish about a future that nobody can forecast and nobody can predict with any degree of certainty. Do we need to ignore the politics, GT Ferreira? Do we need to ignore the politics of today and figure out what the best solution is for a business and ignore the noise? I don't think you can ignore it entirely, uh, but you have to navigate through it. Uh, it's a question of when you've got a company, and it's interesting, when we did this transaction, we spoke to Dr. Anton Rupert at one stage and Johan. 
And both of them actually said that uh, if you become a large company, you are generally considered a sinister influence. But if you don't, you're a failure. So there's no looking back. You have to grow. Your shareholders expect that of you, and you have to find new ways and to uh, grow the earnings per share and the profits of the, of the organization. And may I just go back to that? It was both an offensive and a defensive strategy. Offensive to the extent that we thought we could increase uh, the profits of uh, FNB. And the defensive strategy Lowry referred to was that international banks normally come into a company, into a country, sorry, that uh, in the merchant banking and investment banking space. I don't think there's ever been uh, that I know of, it's, it didn't happen here, Australia or anywhere, where a foreign company came in and started a retail bank and made a success of it. Investment banking, that's different. So that was the defensive side of it. Keep the guys away was the strategy. What's been your biggest disagreement in 40 years? I can't even... Look, there has been disagreements. Now you're There's going no to remind of the resentment we, not, up again. Uh, but I, I would say it's a little bit like when I asked my father, um, you know, did he ever consider divorce? And he said, no, murder many times, <laughs> but not. And there were times when I was, <laughs> and we all were mad at each other, but it didn't last a week, I must say. Laurie, you don't remember the moments? Uh, they, they are, obviously, there were disagreements, but in hindsight, they weren't of any magnitude to be that important, to be honest. And I think where they were, we accepted it. And I think that's a very important thing in our culture as well, that you, as long as you have an open debate where everybody has an equal sort of uh, contribution to the debate, at the end of it, you weigh up the, the, the facts and you make a decision. And it's not always going to be right. And there are going to be people that can, uh, can have I told you so's and that type of thing. But once you collectively decide, then I think you, you back what you've decided and so on. And, and I must say, I think we've had the, I don't know, it's been part of our culture. You know, we, we do something, we didn't necessarily decide to do it, and, uh, but we backed it. But, but a lot of the, the let's say, disappointments, and this actually isn't necessarily in the category of disagreements, is deals that we could have done that we didn't do. What's the fish that got away? Look, there are, there are one or two that I don't want to mention the one particular one. Because mention the other one then. Okay, I'll mention the other one. We were given an opportunity with no capital contribution to start a West Bank equivalent in Brazil, twice our size. Okay, or oh, no, three times the size of our company, by the biggest bank in Brazil for no capital contribution. And we had a registrar who trumped our internal processes, what we thought, what the, what the bank thought, what West Bank thought, and so on, and he decided, no, we can't do that. And I think that we could have created something very serious in Brazil. We may be re regretting it now, you might given be what, but, but still, I think we could have created no, a but, proper I mean, we company. We, we, just as I say, we were wanted to do it, we couldn't get regulatory approval. Oh, but in problem. fairness, it, uh, or as a mitigating, let me rather put it that, mitigate, it was right at the end or in the middle of the it was financial the crisis. crisis yeah. Everybody in the world 
was running scared. It was a, they, they were, it was sort of, you were paralyzed. Was that the scariest moment in the last 40 years? 2008, 2009, banks, nobody trusts each other, nobody's lending anybody any money, the financial system is grinding to a halt, to a scale that nobody has ever seen before? Not even a doubt. Yeah. I remember GT and I talking to each other and he says, could we lose everything that we've worked for for 40 years. The reason being, our bank was solid and sound, but we were, could be overwhelmed by this tsunami sweeping over the world. We'd suddenly have to say we've got money deposited with Citibank or Royal Bank of Scotland. These were uh, iconic institutions, but suddenly there was a big question mark behind them. Now you've got to move the money that you've got with them. Where do you move it? Because remember, you've got overseas bank accounts that you need for your business. Where do you move it? Everybody sort of became suspect. So, I mean, I think at times we bought German short-term treasury bills and, and, and things like that. But it, it, was, it was unbelievably frightening. Uh, I think the scariest moment for me was one day we walked into office and our market cap was, was higher than Citibank. Now, you, you say, what can happen from that? We could buy Citibank. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Do a reverse takeover. There was an opportunity you missed. Maybe. <laughs> and everything plunged by about 50% uh, uh, markets. I also think of stock markets, but it was just... At, and remember, you build a bank on confidence. So that, and confidence, if, the, if your depositors run scared, I mean, it's, it's a stampede, it's... Very difficult to stop it. Anyway, we, the South African banking sector, and I include everyone, we survived it, but it was truly scary. The same regulator, Paul, um, who you're grumpy with for disallowing you to expand into Brazil, is credited with keeping a strong and stable financial system in South Africa, relatively untouched by the crisis. Uh, Okay, <laughs> we can debate that and we say we like to believe it's the management and not of the course. regulator. So I'll, I'll <laughs> let it ride there. But you, you, you have bashed heads with government over time. I mean, there were crime campaigns, there were, there were issues over time. You've, you've chosen fights, you've backed away from some fights, you've engaged in others. Does business into the future need to be a more active corporate citizen in... South Africa's social fabric, the political fabric, in addition to chasing the profit imperative. And, uh, absolutely, but you have to be invited in. You know, you can't force your uh, a partnership. They must actually come to you and say, we'd like you to do this, this, and this, and this. And if it's within the realms of what you can do, the business is ready to do it. What I did learn, I mean, you must, it's very dangerous to pick a fight with government. Discovery had a fight with its regulator at one stage. Share price fell all the way down to six rand. Did, did you top up? And it's sort of one of those fights I sometimes think you, you cannot win uh, unless they, you feel they do, they've done something which you can have tested in a, in a court a case. It's very difficult to, to fight uh, with, a, with a big government. But that doesn't mean you mustn't speak out and present thoughtful, rational views. Can I just say that ever since we've started, we would never consider ourselves to have had an inside track with anybody in government. 
In fact, in my but entire... But you're monopoly capital. You pull no, the In my entire down. career, I, if I have met a cabinet minister more than... On, on a one-on-one -on -one thing, more than three times. In fact, let's say five times to be dead safe. It would be a lot. The concept of inviting a... Or summonsing a cabinet minister to your home... It's just, it's just ridiculous, which has obviously happened on a large scale. It has. In South Africa. Inside tracks did not ever we exist never. in our entire 40-year history. What we got, we got on merit. I need to ask each one of you a question individually, and I've asked you to think about this, and I'm hoping I get three different answers. Put yourself back 40 years ago. Um, to your younger selves, but in the present time. And you were going to meet each other to discuss a business that you wanted to start up from scratch. GT Ferreira, 2018, what would the business for the next 40 years be? I actually know what it shouldn't be, and that's wine farming. Um, but having said that, uh, I believe for myself, I had a wonderful career in, in banking, uh, intellectually very stimulating, etc. And I still believe in the financial services business, so it would be somewhere in the financial services More business. More specifically, though, in a world that is being increasingly disrupted by fintechs and kids with propellers in their brains whirring at the speed of light with artificial intelligence coming in, specifically? I actually think it would be AI in um, asset management. AI in asset management. Laurie, Laurie Dippenau? Uh, I have to concur with GT is what I know and understand that we've done well at is financial services. So I'm going to fall in line with him. But as a hobby, I've got a completely different little uh, idea. Is I would find myself a lot of very clever engineers and then take products and simplify them. I'll give you an example. A microwave oven. I mean, uh, do you agree a microwave oven, you shouldn't have to read a manual? Or if you've got two different microwave ovens, you, you, <laughs> you, 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 you don't know how to operate them. A you can drive a rental car, but nowadays try and switch on the radio and find a station. Okay? <laughs> so my, my idea is to simplify products and the whole brief to the engineers is you're not allowed to have a manual, okay? You, the product you must design, there's no manual. And you put it out there, there's just a box, maybe write one or two things, but that's it. But you must design so that the use of it's intuitive, which is probably not new. If you think that is exactly what Apple Correct. have done to a large extent. That is what their, their products are intuitive. But the TV said... Yeah, a, a TV set. I mean, <laughs> why? How do you marry a DVD player, a decoder, uh, the internet uh, with, with broadband and a te television set? It's so, and the, when you go into a hotel, that remote, do you use all those colored buttons? <laughs> Your point <laughs> is well made. Why are they there? <laughs> Your point is well made. Okay, but you, just before you step off this, you must also understand, Larry's wife will tell you, he can't even fix a plug at home and so on, so that's why. He, <laughs> okay. he can afford to hire help. To do <laughs> it that, is so self-defense too. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Harris. No, um, 
I, I think the, the first thing you need to do something that uh, stimulates you intellectually, makes you excited to get out of bed. Okay, now, now you're talking about uh, from a business perspective. In other words, where can you make the biggest difference? What can excite you the most? You know, we have this thing that you have to have a, a small mosquito on a big artery. In other words, you must go into something that can be substantial at some stage. And I would say two things, and I've got a bent for techie things, I like You're a shareholder in RAIN, which is uh, the internet I, service provider. Yeah, and I'd say in the tech field, I do think telecommunications. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other thing is uh, alternative asset management, you know, where you, you actually talk to and engage with people that have got different skill sets and so on. Technically then, if it was 40 years ago and the three of you met up in a bar, you could start up a new business together. You're not, no, again, even though the world has moved on over four decades, you could do it all over again, but differently. May I just say uh, something on this? I've been asked sometimes to go and speak to the students at Stellenbosch University. And then you have a discussion and in the end it's question time. And the question that comes up first is, what is the secret of success? And I now have been expecting these questions, so I throw it back and say, you tell me your definition of success, and I will try and tell you how to reach it. And then obviously there's a bit of a stump uh, person on the other side, and I, and I say, what do you mean by that? And I say, if you understand correctly, Mother Teresa, was she a success? Of course she was. Did she ever make money? No. Nelson Mandela, you can take all the icons. Uh, and success and money is not necessarily the same thing, and it doesn't naturally come together. But if you do something that inspires you, as Paul says, that you actually enjoy doing it, then you don't start looking at your watch at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And that is, to me, sort of the secret of success. Whether it makes money is a different story. Do you think you've been successful? Have you, I mean, yes, you've made money. Yes, you've kept a partnership together for 40 years. Yes, you've been involved in the startup and the creation of some global South African players, Archer and Discovery, and, and there will be others into the future as well that will come to fruition. Do you think it's, would you classify it as a success? Well, we're still married to the same wives. What more do you want? <laughs> Would they say you've been successful, Paul Harris? We'll wrap it up there. Um, yeah, I think so. But I've never really thought about that, to be quite frank. Paul Harris, Laurie Dippenau, GT Ferreira. This week's Incredible Solutionist Thinkers. R&B Solutionist Thinking. For more on this series, visit 702.co.za.